morning, everyone. Welcome on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning, this fall time. I count it a privilege, but a more weighty responsibility to share the Word of God today. Thank you for those who have prayed already for me. We're looking at a passage in the Gospel of Mark. If you would listen, wish to turn there now, I would encourage you to do so. From Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. But before we read the text, I just want to begin with this statement. There's just a whole lot more to it. You know exactly what I mean when I refer to that home renovation project. There's just a whole lot more to it, isn't it? That desire to have and raise children in a broken world, well, there's just a whole lot more to it. That desire to cultivate that friendship more recently, yes, there's just a whole lot more to it. And in the passage of Scripture we look at today, there's just a whole lot more to it. And it's because there's a whole lot more to Jesus Christ than any of us have ever realized or in a million years would ever learn. There's a lot more to him. We have come to the final paragraph in the chapter 4, of Mark's Gospel. It has followed the first 34 verses, which are a series of parables. And then, from verse 35 through, all the way through chapter 5, it's a series of miracles. So the words precede the works. The works follow the words to convey to us, hopefully, the truth that what Christ does, confirms, invalidates, and vindicates what he says. At this point in the Gospel of Mark and through this next chapter, Mark shows us again, as he has done already on no less than six occasions, the power and the authority of Christ, Christ's authority in teaching. Christ's authority over sickness, Christ's authority over demons, Christ's authority in forgiveness, Christ's authority over nature, Christ's authority over Sabbath. And we come now to the latter part of chapter 4 and where we see a powerful, undisputed display of the authority of our Lord, who we have and continue to worship today. Follow with me as I read from verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The message today will be presented from Mark's Gospel. But please understand that the two other synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke, also record this story, Matthew 8 and Luke 8. But we'll stay in Mark 4. I'm developing the message in two main parts, the exposition, which I'll develop under six main points, and then the application under four main points. Because the story is a very familiar one, I'm going to shorten slightly my time on the exposition and give a little more time than usual to the application, because most of us know this story inside out. But let's not miss the powerful, powerful message to us today because of its familiarity. The first sub-point here is the setting is presented, verses 35 and 36. The whole story begins with three words, on that day. Well, what day? Well, the day on which Jesus told these parables in chapter 4 where he conveyed the truth of the kingdom of God in somewhat of a hidden form by story. And only those with a heart of faith could really perceive what the story was about uh, concerning the kingdom of God. Well, evening had come. He had taught all day, and he was getting tired, and he said to the disciples, let's go across the lake to the other side. He did not say, let's go for a boat trip. No, he said, we're going to the other side. be from the west side to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We are not told the reason why Jesus made this suggestion. It could very well be that as he was tired, he wanted to disperse the crowd and together with his disciples have some time for rest, relaxation, or possibly to find another group of people desperate need of the good news of the gospel. We don't know the reason, and I'm not going to make any conclusion on this. It simply said, suggested to the disciples, let's go to the other side. But despite not knowing the reason, let's be very crystal clear this clear Sunday morning that it was at the command of Christ that they left that shore bound for the east side of Lake Galilee. So they left the crowd in the same boat that Jesus had been teaching all day. And in the phrase, just as he was, probably and presumably means they didn't go back to shore to get more of their gear or more food supplies or have a bathroom break or anything else. They went where they were and they went off to the east side of Galilee. Well, let's see what happens next. The second point, 
The storm is described, verse 37. Mark paints a very vivid picture in brief, brief form of this storm. Well, it wasn't that they left the shore with stormy weather, but very soon the wind peaked, picked up, and they were in the midst of a ferocious, vicious storm. Have you ever been in a boat on the surface of water in a storm? Some of you have. I have. Back in my late teens, it was early November, and I was on a lake with some other friends. We were closing up a Christian camp for delinquent boys coming out of Toronto. We were in that camp. Uh, we had just eaten lunch. We could tell that the wind was picking up. We left about 1.30 in the afternoon. There was no way to this camp by road. We had to go by canoe or boat of some kind. And there was a landing about 20 minutes across the water, straight across the water. We'd done it many different times. Well, this afternoon, we had packed up the boats, the canoes. There were maybe eight or nine of us, I can't remember. And uh, we took off. The wind picked up more and more. What should have taken us 20 minutes took us no less than about four and a half hours. It was a wild, wild day. It's the most wild day I've ever been on a boat, a small little canoe. By the time we finally reached that point, and I cannot go into all the details of that day, it was horrendous, it was scary, and it was exhausting. But we landed ultimately in the dark. Jesus and his disciples faced that and more on the Sea of Galilee that day. To them, it must have seemed like an attack, an invasion, an assault. But there they were in the midst of the sea. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? The poet Ritter penned these words, and I quote, It isn't the tranquil and placid seas that bring out the sailor's skill. It's the wind and waves that pound the ship and toss it about at will. Now just pause for a moment as you consider this familiar story. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly that that storm would arise on Galilee. It was the fact that Jesus knew that made it even more difficult for these disciples to understand the why of the storm in their life. Every one of us have gone through storms. Some of you are going through storms right now. There are storms to come, maybe even later this year, that you cannot foresee you can't imagine. But the storm is coming, and the Lord knows all about it. And he does care. And please, before I get to the next point, please understand very carefully that these disciples had launched out from that western shore of Galilee 
at the Lord's command. That adds another dimension to this whole story, a true story. When I say story, it is a true account. My point here is obedience brings no immunity from the storms of life. You can't say, I'm a follower of Christ. What in the world is going on in my life? Storms come to all of us. And the Lord knows. There's a purpose in the storm. And at this point, I'll diverge, but it's a very key point. And it's something very relevant to our time. And I will say it this way. So much... For the prosperity gospel, which I will succinctly summarize with these words, the idea being health and wealth and happiness all the way to glory. Not so for the true followers of Christ. That's a big lie. That's a sad lie. And that's a lie that can only be manufactured in the Western world in North America. Please understand that. It cannot be applicable to the entire body of Christ worldwide. And therefore, it's an error. Some people don't see that. It is an error. The next verse, verse 38, I summarize the scares indicated. So what was Jesus during, doing during the storm? Well, you know the story. He was asleep at the back of the boat on the cushion. Whatever that cushion means. I've read different things and it's not a significant point. Just that he was lying down at the back of the boat. Asleep. And I, I believe it's sound asleep, okay? Not just getting into sleep. Sound asleep because the storm was picking up. And very violent, these men were staring death in the face and they thought it was their last day and Jesus was asleep. You say, is he indifferent to what I'm going through, what they're going through? Is he out of touch with reality? Well, no. A human being needs sleep. Jesus had two natures, human and divine. At this point, clearly, he is in need of rest. Have you ever slept during a storm? Well, all of us have slept through a storm at times, right? It is Mark alone among the three synoptic gospel writers who expresses and indicates this fact that he was at the stern, asleep, on the cushion. It's the only time in all four gospels that Jesus sleeping is mentioned. But Believe this, that he slept pretty well every day, every 24-hour day of his life here on earth. You might have had sleeps where you only slept three or four hours, okay? We've all had that. But he slept because there was the human dimension of his nature, the human nature. While Jesus slept... The disciples were beside themselves with terror, panic, fear, dread, astonishment. 
any words to convey what they were going through. And what complicated it for them was that their master and mentor seemed not to care. He was asleep. And he wasn't going to gradually come to consciousness. He was woken up by these terrified disciples. He was woken up by them. He was not woken up by the storm. The disciples aroused him, and with these words, obviously, to any ear in any country of the world, the words are words of rebuke. The disciple to his master was saying, for all you care, we're going to drown. Don't you care? And so the call went out for intervention, SOS, save our souls. Didn't say that, but exactly, that's exactly what the message was of the disciples to their master, save our souls, save our lives. Scares indicated. Verse 39, the supernatural is performed. So, was Jesus really indifferent? Not if you read, understand, and believe. Verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Again, Mark alone among the synoptic writers, records the exact words of Jesus. Matthew and Luke only record the fact that he said something, but it doesn't say what he said. So the answer was instant. The answer was miraculous. The wind and the waves were spoken to separately because you have to understand, winds and waves are two different things. They're obviously related here. In the story, you can have a calm sea with a gentle breeze, or you can have a wild sea where the waves are high and threatening. Only he who created the wind and the sea would dare to address the wind and sea in this fashion. During that storm, when I was in my late teens, I didn't speak to the wind and the waves. We were at the mercy of the wind and waves. But Jesus spoke, and notice very carefully that he did not call upon a higher power. There is no higher power than the Son of God, God made flesh, manifest in the flesh. There is no higher power. Nor did he plead or coax, or seek to persuade creation to lie down and submit. He did not. He spoke once, and the waves tamed down and lied down. The wind stopped. Meanwhile, essentially, and the sense of the original language here is, be quiet. Or as Lenski, the New Testament scholar, said, and he translated it this way, put the muzzle on and keep it on. Or in John Scorgy paraphrase, lie down and stay down. 
The lion became a lamb at the power of the divine Son of God. It wasn't the disciples wishing that the waves would calm down. It was that God the Son spoke to his creation. And the creation, with first-time obedience, every parent here knows you want first-time obedience from your children. You, you, you teach them that. Our children are all children, are all parents, and they will use that phrase with their children. We've heard them say that. First-time obedience. So the disciples saw their master speak, and the creation submit on first command. Throughout the Bible, and really throughout most cultures of the world, the raging sea has seemed to be the last untamed power. But the creator, creator himself has created the oceans, the seas. And really, seas is a misnomer. In terms of the oceans of the world, think of this just for a moment. There's only really one sea. There's only one ocean. It's all in different places, but it's all connected. So it's one major body of water, the salt seas of the world. And in the Psalms, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, had for hundreds of years attributed praise to the God who is even over the seas, over the oceans. And I will give you these references. Psalm 89, verse 9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. Psalm 93, verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And Psalm 107, verse 29, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So the Hebrew people knew that God was ruler over even of the seas. And when the disciples, these Jewish disciples, saw what Jesus had done, they knew. Or at least they were coming. They were coming to an understanding of the, the deity, the divine nature of Christ. So obviously this storm story contains a miracle. None of us here should ever try to explain away Mark 4, 35 through 41 as a coincidence on the Sea of Galilee. Don't do it. That robs God of his glory. This is a story of a mighty miracle of God. And I understand that modern people, and even probably throughout time, have struggled with the miraculous nature of the Bible. Of course, it's a supernatural book. It is a divine book, a holy book. It does contain the miraculous, and this account that we look at today contains a miracle, no less than a mighty act of God for good. So the what Jesus said that day to the wind and the sea is not inconsistent with who he is. He's not speaking above his pay grade. He is speaking at that level as God over all. The storm story of Mark Ford records the clear, compelling evidence of his deity. Verse 40, the next point, the scolding is delivered. Following such a display of divine power and authority, Jesus turns to his disciples and says these words, Why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? We'll just go into these just a bit. I truly believe that Jesus asks his followers in every generation the same two questions. Why are you so afraid? And the implied question beneath is, haven't you calculated me into the equation of life? Life is complicated, but why do we exclude the God of the universe from the equations of life? from the wrinkles and riddles of life. Where's your faith? That's the second question. Haven't you calculated me, says Jesus, into the circumstances of life? And so Jesus' words here are a scolding. They are coming from a loving, caring heart. I don't question that. I'm just saying they are words of rebuke. Let's not mince our words. For where these disciples were in their relationship to Christ and through four chapters of living with him and so on and seeing him minister, they should have gotten this one straight, but they had not. They were terrified even when Christ was with them in the boat. So he did rebuke them for their fear and their lack of faith. But there was a, a big lesson here to learn. What's the difference between fear and faith? Well, I could probably draw up quite a list, but I'll be quite brief here. I would summarize it like this. Fear is natural. Faith is supernatural. Fear is horizontal looking, even if you're looking inside or looking at the circumstances of life. Whereas faith is vertical. It realizes that the ceiling is not the extent of my life, that beyond all this is God who rules on high. Fear and faith cannot be in full strength, each of them, at the same time in one heart. Either fear is rising up or faith is rising up. They are incompatible with full, mutual. They cannot abide together in fullness. So, when fear is rising, faith is falling. When faith is rising, fear is falling. That's the kind of relationship between fear, which is natural, and faith, which is supernatural. So yes, Jesus did rebuke his disciples, and part of love and care is rebuke. I thank God for my parents, both have now passed on, but I thank God that they cared enough for their three sons to rebuke them and to chastise and discipline when we were young. I needed that. My brothers did too. Thank God for the rebukes of God's word. It's not always comfort. We need the rebuke of the Lord. The last point in the exposition, verse 41, the shock is expressed. So we come to the last verse of this story. It's, it's the last one. It doesn't go on into chapter 5. So how does the story end? Oh, 
And they lived happily ever after. No, it's not how the story ended. And they fell to deep, sweet peace. No, that's not how the story ends. And they finally figured out Jesus. Not completely. No, that's not how the story ends. And they no longer had to face any more trials. No, that's not how the story ends. And they finally figured out Jesus. No, not completely. No, that's not how the story ends. Notice this very carefully. Jesus' disciples did not stop being fearful when Jesus stopped the storm. I will say that again. Jesus' disciples did not stop being fearful when Jesus stopped the storm. That's crucial understand the real dynamic of this true account. It says that their fear actually increased. You're saying that? Well, let's look at it. What's it say? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So their fear actually increased we understand this. This is the only time in this message this morning that I will give any hint of the Greek lesson because the New Testament was written in Greek. It's essential to understand this, and this is not complicated. Okay, very simple. The word afraid in verse 40 is different from the word fear in verse 41. You say, well, of course, they're different words, they're different spellings. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they have different roots, different meanings, different directions. What does verse 40, the word afraid, mean? It comes from a certain Greek word, dilos, in the Greek New Testament, found only three times, and every time, without exception, always means terror, dread. Every time that word occurs in the Greek New Testament, just three times, it means dread or terror. Whereas the word in verse 41, fear, is the word phobos in Greek, from which we get our English word phobia. But that word in Greek can mean either terror, dread, or reverence, awe, and wonder. And it's always the context that determines how that single word in Greek will be translated in that particular passage. And as in the world of real estate, and I've never been in the world of real estate, but I know this, you know this, that in terms of selling a house, the key is location, location, location. Those are the three keys to selling a house. Those three, basically. Well, in the world of biblical interpretation, if I were to summarize it, and it does seem overly simplistic for me to say this, but I still will say it to you. The most basic fundamental key principle in biblical interpretation is context, context, context. 
Yes, that's oversimplification, but if you can understand that and get it, you'll be on your way. So in the context, in the context of the story in verse 41, that second reference to fear, another Greek word, obviously means not terror or dread, but reverence, awe, wonder. You can remember this. I woke up in the middle of the night two weeks ago, and I got up and I wrote this down, so don't forget it, okay? It cost me some sleep. Here it is. You wonder what kind of fear this is? Raw. Raw emotion. Reverence. R-A-W, wonder. That's the response, and that's the kind of fear that emerged completely in their hearts as they saw what Christ had done. And the clue to remembering that is the, the way that the sentence begins and ends in verse 41. Their words. How does it begin? It begins with the word who, not what. It ends with the word him, not it. Because it was upon the person of Christ that they were now spellbound in reverence awe and wonder. That's the context that helps us to understand the meaning of that word. And up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, these men with Jesus had not faced their own mortality. It was only on this day on the Sea of Galilee that they faced their mortality. And probably everybody here is old enough to have faced their mortality, and I mean not intellectually. I'm saying on firsthand. I, I've faced death about five times at least in my life, and probably more when I did not even know it. At least five. When I thought, I'm a goner. It's finished. And when you face your mortality, the truth can really hit you like a 10-ton truck, right? When you face your mortality, like, am I not going to live here forever? Uh, everybody else who's ever lived centuries before, they've all passed. Nobody has survived from the 18th century to now. Nobody. Nobody has survived from the 19th century. They've all passed. We're going to pass too unless Christ returns in our lifetime. So implied in the command of Christ to the wind and the waves is his claim. Deity. I come to the four applications now. Application number one, reckon with the amazing natures of Jesus. In no story up until now in the Gospel of Mark do we see so clearly the distinct two natures of Christ, human and divine. When we observe Jesus asleep at the back of the boat during a storm, we see his clear, true humanity. When we see Jesus calming the storm, we see clearly Jesus' genuine deity. I think the term God-man, at least in my own experience, has been, a, I've been acquainted with it for about 50 years. And when I first heard it, I thought, is that being a little disrespectful, the way you put those terms together? And I was hesitant to use that for the longest time. 
But I will tell you now, I believe that is the most succinct way of describing the two natures of the one person of Jesus Christ. One person, not two. Two natures, not one. This was hammered out in the first five centuries of the Christian church, particularly the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Chalcedon in 381, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Three councils. I've been studying the scriptures since I was a young teen, and I will say to you very honestly this morning, it has been the person of Christ that has been my greatest fascination through all these years. As I've preached for years and years, I have found the person of Christ to be my greatest fascination. And it ties in exactly with Philippians 3.10, my lifetime verse, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. It is at this point, the, the person of Christ, it's at this very per point, particularly the two natures of Christ, that all of the cults of the world diverge from the person of Christ. So you might think this morning, John Scorgie's getting just a little too theological on this point. Don't think that for a moment, my friend. If you are a follower of Christ, you need to know the person of Christ. So don't say I'm being theological when I say that all the cults have diverged on this very matter. The person of Christ, particularly his two natures. It's not all of the points on this matter, but we need to know this. I'll share three key terms that we do need to be acquainted with. The incarnation. We're coming up to Christmas, and we all know what this is about. You say, oh, it's about the birth of Christ. Well, yes, but what's the story behind the story? And that is the incarnation. You won't find the word incarnation in the Bible. It's Latin. It's not Greek, and it's not Hebrew. So you don't find the word incarnation, but you find the truth of the incarnation, and it means simply in flesh. God came in the flesh in the person of his son. The father didn't. The spirit didn't. The logos did. Jesus, the eternal logos, became flesh. John 1.14. In my late teens, I read that verse if I, as if I'd never read it before. And I know this again will sound too simplistic on a Sunday morning. But it has probably been those five words that have been the most life-changing for me. In terms of my understanding of Christ and Christianity, the Word was made flesh. I've studied the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, but I've never, ever gotten over those five words in John's Gospel. And in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41, we see the two natures of Christ. He's not just divine. He has that human nature. He's not just human. He has the divine nature. It's two natures in one. Very God of very God, very man of very man. One person, not two. Two natures, not one. He is the Lord of glory. And for any here this morning who say, that's just a little too heavy. Heavy for me to this morning. Let me convey it in the words of a song that our family loved to sing. 
And when we hear it on a tape, we belt it out. We sing it, and our grandchildren love to sing it. Just one phrase. I won't say the whole song. I won't sing the song. I will just say this one line. He, it was reference to Jesus, he was so much man that he slept in a boat. Yet he was so much God that the wind ceased when he spoke. Jesus can fully identify with you and me in whatever storm you are facing. There's no qualification to the storms saying, this one's a big one, this one's a little one. This isn't worth having God's help. Hey, every storm of life, you know what they mean. We need his help. And as one person, I don't know who, paraphrased John 1.14, he pitched his tent in our backyard. He knows what it is to be human. He didn't walk six feet above the ground. He walked on terra firma, the earth. He is the God-man. Application number two, reckon with the absolute authority of Jesus. This wonderful true story displays the divine authority of the Son of God. And Mark wants us to know that. That we're not talking about a magician or a great teacher or a great entertainer. We're talking here about the God-man, the Son of God. One Bible commentator, Bach by name, that's his last name, wrote this, and I quote, this A to Z exercise of power in Mark's gospel shows Jesus' comprehensive authority. Jesus possesses and exercises divine authority over the creation he has made. And clearly, that includes all creation, and that includes you and me. We're not our own creation. We are created by God. Christ's divine authority and its exercise pertains to the, all of the particulars of creation, whether by microscope or telescope or the naked eye of the human being. God is overall. It's his creation. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, and politician said this, and I quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. We must confess of Jesus and to Jesus our thoughts of you have been too small. Our ponderings of you have been too few. Our expectations of you have been too puny. As I began the message, so I say again, there's a whole lot more to Jesus than any of us have ever understood or learned. Application number three, reckon with the awesome identity of Jesus. The disciples knew that he was a great teacher, a great healer, a great prophet, a great example, a great friend, a great mentor. 
But I don't think they knew fully that he was and is the mighty son of God. They were coming to an understanding. It was a learning curve. They were coming. Most of us are proven to prefer a humanistic Jesus where he understands and cares and loves and sympathizes. And that is true. That is true. But we also have to reckon with the dual natures, the, the twofold nature that he's also the divine son of God. You think you have a boss at work? Well, maybe you're your own boss. Hey, if you're your own boss, realize there's a higher boss. And if you have another boss at work, realize there's someone supreme, supreme. The Lord Jesus Christ. Neither Mark, the gospel writer, nor Jesus, the gospel center, want us to be uncertain of who he is. You know, in any relationship on earth, I'm thinking now of marriage, there's no way that any of us who are married ever knew our spouse completely, either, you know, when we first got to know them or on the day of our engagement or the day of our wedding. You just continue to get to know that person. Well, Christ wants us to continue to get to know him. Don't let the familiarity of the story rob you. Rob you of the joy of discovering who Jesus really is and the joy of submitting to him and growing in your understanding of him. Let me review just some of the amazing truths of Jesus' true identity. And this is not an exhaustive list at all. I say that up front, right from the get-go. But these are some of the things these are his identity. He is the Lord, the master, the king. He is the creator, the sustainer, the provider. He's the king of gray skies and stormy weather. He's the king of sunshine and sunsets. He's the king of the molecular world and all the electrons and the pull of gravity and all of that, the tides of the world. He, he's He's Lord over all of that. He's the Lord of springtime and summer and fall. And yes, winter too. He is the Lord over all. He's the king of the mountains and the valleys. He's the monarch of meadows and canyons. He's the Lord over the rivers and the ponds and the streams and the lakes and the oceans of the world. He made them. He's Lord over them. The Lord over all the animal world, those that dwell on land, in the air, and in the sea. He's the Lord. He made them all. He's not only creator, he's the master as well. He's the Lord and king of the constellations out in a world that none of us will ever see. It would take hundreds of light years, 286,000 miles per second light year. We'll never know that world, but he made that. He's the Lord over all of that. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. If he is, what proof in your life can you present 
to anybody who would inquire, is he your savior? Is he your Lord? What proof do you have? If you had to present evidence in a court of law, undisputable evidence, where's the evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord? Application number four, reckon with the appropriate response to Jesus. I'll say it this way, we will all live with fear of one kind or another. You choose, you choose, I choose. You can live with the Dilos fear of terror and dread the rest of your days, if you choose. Or you can live with the Phobos in proper context of reverence, awe, and wonder. Because we're all going to live with fear. It's not that fear will be eradicated. You choose one or the other. What's in the pot? What's in the container? What kind of fear do you contain? Is it going to be reverence, awe, and wonder? Or terror and dread? Christ's amazing natures, absolute authority, and awesome identity give us very solid reason now and through all eternity to enthusiastically worship Him, completely trust Him, diligently and joyfully serve Him until we pass from this world. Serve Him, worship Him, trust Him. So again, I say, you choose your fear. Fear is natural. Faith is supernatural. Live the supernatural life on terra firma for the glory of God. I exhort myself at the same time. So, if we're going to have to live with fear of one kind or another, let me summarize it this way. Let us fear God. Not people. Let us fear God not our circumstances. Let us fear God, not our persecutors. Let us fear God, not our mortality. Every one of us will live with fear the rest of our lives. It doesn't contradict the statement I made a few minutes ago that fear casts out faith, faith casts out fear, because I'm talking about a certain kind of fear. Don't misunderstand me right now. I've tried to explain it through the message. We all live with fear. What kind of fear will it be? Paul David Tripp said this, and I quote, If awesome things in creation become your God, small g, the God, capital G, who created those things will not own your awe. Horizontal awe is meant to do one thing, stimulate vertical Vertical fear, reverence, awe, and wonder. Psalm 47, 1 and 2 says, that's a hearty exhortation to me and to you. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. In conclusion, I exhort you, as I exhort myself, this message is as much to me as anybody here. Don't let this familiar story rob you of the experience of being on the learning curve concerning the person of Christ. 
And don't let this familiar story rob you of the opportunity to respond to him in a way that honors him for who he truly and eternally is. Even if the finer details of this short story were to fade from your memory, don't forget the basic lesson. Reckon with the amazing natures of Jesus. Reckon with the absolute authority of Jesus. Reckon with the awesome identity of Jesus. Reckon with the appropriate response to Jesus. As I began, so I conclude, there's a whole lot more to Jesus than we ever realized or could ever imagine in a million years. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we have worshipped you this morning in a corporate fashion. We thank you for the worship team as they come to close this service now. Bless them and bless us as we lift up your name on high. As we recall this familiar story from Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, help us to learn, Lord, truly who you are. Help us, Lord, to respond in a way that is fitting for who you are. And we will give you the glory, for you are worthy. We will give you the praise, for you are worthy. We will give you the honor, for you are worthy. In Christ's holy name.